Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 119 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question is a continuation of yesterday's, does the Bible actually condone slavery? So happy Lord's Day to you, friends and family, as I write this greeting. I've just finished uploading a series of testimonies and words of encouragement from members of our church family to be shown in today's live stream. I'd love to invite you to join us. Just go to Facebook and search for VBC Salinas, that's Victor Bravo Charlie Salinas, and you can jump on and worship and pray with us and participate and hear a message on standing firm in the midst of trials and tribulations from Second Thessalonians. Now, today's Bible readings for the show include Numbers chapter 3, Song of Solomon 1, Psalms 37, and Hebrews chapter 1. I'm actually excited about our two new books, and I look forward to reading them together with you guys. As I said earlier, today we're continuing our discussion on slavery in the Bible, and we're likely going to conclude it tomorrow, maybe one more day or so. This is kind of a big topic, and the reason is because I've heard so many skeptics sort of use this as an argument against Christianity, as an argument against the Bible, the assumption that the Bible condones slavery and that all Christians were racists and bigots and slave owners and such for years. Well, the fact of the matter is, the Bible does not condone slavery, especially in the New Testament when it strongly discourages slavery. It doesn't out and out outlaw slavery, but it strongly discourages it. And yes, there have been plenty of people who identified as Christians who were racist, but the Bible is vehemently against any sort of racism. So ultimately, I believe over today's episode, tomorrow's, you know, maybe the next day, we'll see. I believe that we will demonstrate that the New Testament strongly discourages slavery and strongly promotes inequality. Equality in a very cutting edge and very modern sort of way. There have definitely been church people throughout the years, like like I said, that have taught that the Bible blesses slavery, uh, but that was usually not the majority in the church, and such teaching was absolutely the opposite of what the Bible taught. Today we will begin by looking at some voices from throughout church history that strongly opposed slavery and stood for righteousness, and we will also consider a few Bible passages that are illuminating about the topic. Paul's letter to Philemon that we read yesterday is the thing that kind of sparked us on this discussion. It's basically a very nicely worded command from Paul to Philemon to let his bondservant Onesimus go. Now, now, if you're interested in this topic for uh, in a deeper way than we cover in this podcast, I think the longest book I've ever written, or the second longest, I don't know, it doesn't really matter, but I go into the subject a lot in my book, The Bible and Racism. It's a book that's available on Amazon, and you can get it for less than the cost of seven luxury yachts. I mean, what a deal. That's a great deal. So let's start out with a quote from my hero, Charles Spurgeon, who wrote this uh, or preached this in the 1800s, right? So this is not modern. This is in the 1800s. And he says this, The gospel has a consuming power. 
Once fairly set alight, it will burn and blaze and spread till others shall cast away their evil habits and turn unto the living God. I cannot help noticing in history the consuming power of the gospel of Jesus. There have been old systems of sin that have been hoary with age, but when at last they have been attacked by the church of God with the sword of the Spirit and the gospel of Christ, they have been utterly destroyed. There was, says Spurgeon, for instance, that abominable institution of slavery, and there was a part of the Church of Christ which tried to palliate it, comfort it, and spoke of it as, quote, a divine institution, a peculiar institution. And Spurgeon says, I know not what, but when the Church of God denounced slavery as a thing utterly inconsistent with Christianity, the thing was burnt up right speedily and passed away. There are many more social and political wrongs that will have to perish through the burning power of the gospel, and there is much in our hearts, much in our lives, and much all around about us that will have to go as the gospel fire burns more and more vigorously. Richard Baxter is a Puritan preacher who lived a couple of hundred years earlier than Spurgeon in the 1600s, And this is what Baxter had to say about this issue. Do you not mark how God hath followed you with plagues, and may not conscience tell you that it is for your inhumanity to the souls and bodies of men, to go as pirates and catch up poor black people, or people of another land that never forfeited life or liberty, and to make them slaves and fell them is one of the worst kinds of thievery in the world, and such persons are to be taken for the common enemies of mankind, and they that buy them as beasts for their mere commodity, and betray or destroy or neglect their souls, are fitter to be called devils than Christians. It is an heinous sin to buy them, because by right the man is his own, therefore no man else can have a just title to him. Once again, Richard Baxter from the 1600s. Uh, This is George Fox, another 1600s preacher, who said this, Consider with yourselves, if you were in the same condition as the blacks are, who came strangers to you and were sold to you as slaves. I say, if this should be the condition of you or yours, you would think it hard to measure, yea, in a very great bondage and cruelty. And therefore consider seriously of this, and do you for, and to them, or any other, to do unto you, were you in like slavish condition, and bring them to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you probably know this, but the person who led the modern charge for the abolition of slavery was a man named William Wilberforce, who was a committed Christian, and John Newton was sort of his mentor, a man who wrote the song Amazing Grace, and in his youth, one of the reasons why he calls himself a wretch In that song, he was the captain of a ship that brought slaves to the old world from Africa, a practice he thoroughly repudiated and repented of later in his life and influenced William Wilberforce to fight against it. So, yes, there were Christians who supported slavery. They were utterly and abominably wrong. 
but it was also the fact that God used Christians to rise up and overturn that horrific practice. Let me give you another one. James Foster, writing in the middle 1700s, 1749, he says, We ourselves, who profess to be Christians and boast of the peculiar advantage we enjoy by means of express revelation of our duty from heaven, are in effect just like these very untaught and rude heathen countries. With all our superior light, we instill into those whom we call savage and barbarous the most despicable opinion of human nature. We, to the utmost of our power, weaken and dissolve the universal tie that binds and unites mankind. We practice what we would exclaim against, as the utmost excess of cruelty and tyranny if nations of the world differing in color were possessed of an empire as to be able to reduce us to a state of unmerited and brutish servitude. Of consequence, we sacrifice our reason, our humanity, our Christianity to an unnatural sordid gain. We teach other nations to despise and trample underfoot all obligations of social virtue. We take the most effectual method to prevent the propagation of the gospel by representing it as a scheme of power and barbarous oppression and an enemy to the natural privileges and rights of men. Perhaps all that I have now offered may be of very little weight to restrain this enormity, this aggravated iniquity. However, I shall still have the satisfaction of having entered my private protest against a practice which, in my opinion, buds that God, who is the God and Father of the Gentiles, unconverted to Christianity, most daring and bold defiance, and spurns at all the principles both of natural and revealed religion. In other words, Foster is saying, I am against this, the Bible is against this, God is against this, and it is spreading evil in the world that some men participate in kidnapping and slavery. The issue of racism in the Bible is actually a fairly simple one in a lot of ways. The Bible heartily and completely and all throughout its pages condemns racism of any kind and unequivocally declares that all humans are equally made in the image of God and equally related to each other through Adam and Eve. God shows no partiality, and the gospel and its benefits are for every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. Less simple is the topic of slavery in the Bible, primarily because the writers of the Bible acknowledge the existence of slavery, but are not always wholly concerned with toppling the institution. Before we discuss the particulars of why that might be, it's important to consider an overview of what exactly the Bible does teach about slavery. And the majority of passage we'll cover in the next couple of days will, are going to be New Testament passages. Now, that doesn't discount the teaching of the Old Testament, of course, but it is a recognition that Christians of the past 19 centuries have been primarily governed by the New Testament. The Old Testament was written to the Jewish people, and it is scripture and profitable for Christians today, but the New Testament is binding and authoritative for Christians today. And there is an entire book of the New Testament, Paul's letter to Philemon, we've already talked about, that is concerned with the issue of slavery. As we discussed yesterday, Philemon was a Christian and apparently owned 
servants, bond servants, doulasses, or slaves, uh, one in particular that was a friend of Paul and was apparently saved through Paul's ministry. Now, Paul doesn't demand Philemon release Onesimus, but you could argue that he absolutely does ask for it and even command the release of Onesimus, a fact that is made very obvious by verse 14, talking about your good deed, verse 16, saying that Onesimus is no longer a slave, Verse 19, Paul saying he's going to repay any debt of Onesimus. Verse 21, when Paul says, since I am confident of your obedience and that I know you will do more than I say. Now, even if one doesn't fully agree with my interpretation of the letter of Philemon, it is unquestionable that Paul directs Philemon to no longer consider Onesimus as a slave, but to treat him as Philemon would treat Paul himself which is a pretty lofty command, to be sure. While the Bible doesn't indicate whether Philemon followed Paul's directive or not, church history actually does tell us that he did. And even that Onesimus went on to become a bishop, a high-level leader in the early church. And Henry Halley tells us this story in his Bible handbook, uh, Halley's Handbook. It says, and he, Henry says this, The Bible gives no hint as to how the master received his returning servant slave. But there is a tradition that says his master did receive him and took Paul's veiled hint and gave the slave his liberty. That is the way the gospel works. Christ in the heart of the master made the master recognize the slave as a Christian brother and give him his liberty. There is a tradition, as we just mentioned, that Onesimus afterward became a bishop in Berea. The Mosaic slave laws and the writings of Paul benefited and protected the slaves as best as possible in the situation. God's desire for any who are enslaved is freedom. See Luke uh, 4.18 and Galatians 5.1. Those who are set free in Christ then need to be prepared to walk in liberty. Pagan nations had a much different outlook towards slaves, believing slaves had no rights or privileges. Because of the restrictions and humane aspect of the Mosaic laws on slavery, it never existed on a large scale in Israel and did not exhibit the cruelty seen in Egypt, Greece, Rome, Assyria, and other nations. And what we're going to do tomorrow is we're actually going to examine the word that the Bible uses uh, that is often translated in some Bibles and some versions as slave and in others as servant and in others as bond servant. It's the word doulos. And the word doulos, I think you're going to see from the scripture does not equate with what we think of when we think of the word slave. It was not an entirely different conception, but one that was different enough and maybe even strongly different enough that I, when I usually read the word slave in the New Testament, I really think of the word bondservant. Because when I think of slavery, I think of the horrible, abominable, unjustifiable and absolutely wicked racist practice of that happened in the the American South up until the time it was abolished. Uh, I, that's what I think of when I think of slavery. But when the Bible, particularly the New Testament, talks about slavery, it really talks about something far different from that. Now, don't just take my opinion on that. Tomorrow, we will dive in deeper and we will see some of the other passages. And I think you'll see grammatically, maybe historically and contextually too, 
that the Bible makes a pretty clear case that its primary word that is, again, sometimes translated slave, the Greek word doulos, doesn't really mean what we think of when we hear the word slave. Well, we'll do that tomorrow. For today, let's read Numbers chapter 3, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. These are the family records of Aaron and Moses at the time the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of Aaron's sons, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar. These are the names of Aaron's sons, the anointed priests who were ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died in the Lord's presence when they presented unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no sons. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests under the direction of Aaron, their father. The Lord spoke to Moses, Bring the tribe of Levi near and present them to the priest Aaron to assist him. They are to perform duties for him in the entire community before the tent of meeting by attending to the service of the tabernacle. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and perform duties for the Israelites by attending to the service of the tabernacle. Assign the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They have been assigned exclusively to him from the Israelites. You are to appoint Aaron and his sons to carry out their priestly responsibilities, but any unauthorized person who comes near the sanctuary is to be put to death. The Lord spoke to Moses, See, I have taken the Levites from the Israelites in place of every firstborn Israelite from the womb. The Levites belong to me, because every firstborn belongs to me. At the time I struck down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated every firstborn in Israel to myself, both man and animal. They are mine. I am the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. Register the Levites by their ancestral families and their clans. You are to register every male one month old or more. So Moses registered them in obedience to the Lord as he had been commanded. These were Levi's sons by name, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. These were the names of Gershon's sons by their clans, Lipni and Shemai. Kohath's sons by their clans were Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Utziel. Merari's sons by their clans were Machli and Mushi. These were the Levite clans by their ancestral families. The Libnite clan and the Shimeite clan came from Gershon. These were the Gershonite clans. Those registered, counting every male one month old or more, numbered 7,500. The Gershonite clans camped behind the tabernacle on the west side, and the leader of the Gershonite families was Eliasaph, son of Lael. The Gershonites' duties at the tent of meeting involved the tabernacle, the tent, its covering, the screen for the entrance to the tent of meeting, the hanglings of the courtyard, the screen for the entrance to the courtyard that surrounds the tabernacle, and the altar and the tent ropes, all the work relating to these. The Amramite clan, the Itzra, Raharite clan, the Hebronite clan, and the Utzielite clan came from Kohath. These were the Kohathites. Counting every male one month old or more, there were 8,600 responsible for the duties of the sanctuary. The clans of the Kohathites camped on the south side of the tabernacle, and the leader of the families of the Kohathite clans was Elazaphan, son of Utziel. Their duties involved the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the sanctuary utensils that were used with these, and the screen, and all the work relating to them. The chief of the Levite leaders was Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest. He had oversight of those responsible for the duties of the sanctuary. The Malhite clan and the Mushite clan came from Merari. These were the Merarite clans. Those registered, counting every male one month old or more, numbered 6,200.
The leader of the families of the Merarite clans was Zuriel, son of Abahel. They camped on the north side of the tabernacle. The assigned duties of Merari's descendants involved the tabernacle supporters, cross supports, crossbars, pillars, bases, all its equipment, and all the work related to these. In addition to the posts of the surrounding courtyard with their bases, tent pegs, and ropes. Moses, Aaron, and his sons, who performed the duties of the sanctuary as a service on behalf of the Israelites, camped in front of the tabernacle on the east in front of the tent of meeting toward the sunrise. Any unauthorized person who came near it was to be put to death. The total number of the Levite males, one month old or more, that Moses and Aaron registered by their clans at the Lord's command was 22,000. The Lord told Moses, register every firstborn male of the Israelites, one month old or more, and list their names. You are to take the Levites for me. I am the Lord in place of every firstborn among the Israelites and the Levites' cattle in place of every firstborn among the Israelites' cattle. So Moses registered every firstborn among the Israelites as the Lord commanded him. The total number of the firstborn males, one month old or more, listed by name was 22,273. The Lord spoke to Moses again, Take the Levites in place of every firstborn among the Israelites and the Levites' cattle in place of their cattle. The Levites belong to me. I am the Lord. As the redemption price for the 273 firstborn Israelites who outnumber the Levites, collect five shekels for each person according to the standard sanctuary shekel, 20 geras to the shekel. Give the shekel silver to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are in excess among the Israelites. So Moses collected the redemption amount from those in excess of the ones redeemed by the Israel, the Levites. He collected the silver from the firstborn Israelites, 1,365 shekels measured by the standard sanctuary shekel. He gave the redemption silver to Aaron and his sons in obedience to the Lord, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your caresses are more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. We will rejoice and be glad in you. We will celebrate your caresses more than wine. It is only right that they adore you. Daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, you whom I love, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats near the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are beautiful with jewelry, your neck with its necklace. We will make gold jewelry for you, accented with silver. While the king is on his couch, my perfume releases its fragrance. The one I love is a sachet of myrrh to me, spending the night between my breasts. The one I love is a cluster of henna blossoms to me in the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling, how very beautiful. Your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my love. How delightful. Our bed is verdant. The beams of our houses are cedars. 
and our rafters are cypresses. Psalm chapter 37, verse 1. Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong, for they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act, making your righteousness shine like the dawn, your justice like the noonday. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated, it can only bring harm. For evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. The wicked person schemes against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. The Lord laughs at him because he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and strung the bow to bring down the poor and needy and to slaughter those whose way is upright. Their swords will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. The little that the righteous person has is better than the abundance of many wicked people, for the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord supports the righteous. The Lord watches over the blameless all their days and their inheritance will last forever. They will not be disgraced in times of adversity. They will be satisfied in days of hunger." but the wicked will perish. The Lord's enemies, like the glory of the pastures, will fade away. They will fade away like smoke. The wicked person borrows and does not repay, but the righteous one is gracious and giving. Those who are blessed by the Lord will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be destroyed. A person's steps are established by the Lord, and he takes pleasure in his way. Though he falls, he will not be overwhelmed, because the Lord supports him with his hand. I have seen young, and now I am old. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous abandoned, or his children begging for bread. He is always generous, always lending, and his children are a blessing. Turn away from evil, and do what is good, and settle permanently. For the Lord loves justice, and will not abandon his faithful ones. They are kept safe forever, but the children of the wicked will be destroyed. The righteous will inherit the land, and dwell in it permanently. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks what is just. The instruction of his God is in his heart. His steps do not falter. The wicked one lies in wait for the righteous and intends to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in the power of the wicked one or allow him to be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will watch when the wicked are destroyed." I have seen a wicked, violent person well-rooted like a flourishing native tree. Then I passed by and noticed he was gone. I searched for him, but he could not be found. Watch the blameless and observe the upright, for the person of peace will have a future, but transgressors will be eliminated. The future of the wicked will be destroyed. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Their refuge is in a time of distress." The Lord helps and delivers them. He will deliver them from the wicked and will save them because they take refuge in him. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And about the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the son, your throne, God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak and they will be changed like clothing, but you are the same and your years will never end. Now, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? Amen. Well, God bless you, friends. I pray that it is a wonderful Lord's Day for you. Good day to you and Godspeed.